We're reading today from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that, for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is the word of God for us. Hey, my name is Jeff Nine. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't had a chance to meet, uh, we'd love to get to, to know you. And, uh, and if you're here and you're not a Christian, I just want to say thanks for being here. It means a lot to us that you, would, that you would come and be here. And I just want to say, hey, there may be some things that are said that sound weird, uh, probably some things that were said or done that seem weird. Uh, there's no question off limits. Let me just say that. Like any question you have, even any challenge you have, we'd love to, to talk with you about that. And so uh, I'd love to catch you afterwards if you're willing to, to, to talk into dialogue. But thanks for being here regardless. Um, hey, I want to, as we set in, um, as we set this morning in worship, I'm just reminded of the, this moment of confession and assurance that we do as a church. I want to remind us why we do this. We don't do this because it's like, uh, we can't sing another song, so we've got to fill the gap somehow. We're not trying to do it just because we're trying to hit a certain length of service. We're, we're doing it because by, by every week stepping into a moment of confession and assurance, we're teaching our hearts to remember that all of the Christian life is a life of repentance. That none of us are perfect. None of us, uh, uh, none of us come to God with a clean slate or with a, with a bulletproof uh, uh, resume. We all come as busted and broken up people. And we all come as people that both need to confess where we have failed and we come in need of the gospel that speaks a better word to us. Now, I, the reason I say that or the reason that I remind us of that is, is that we have to come to the biblical text with that same posture. And I want to ask you particularly today to do that. What Paul's going to do is he's going to do a lot of deep heart work. He's doing deep heart work in the life of the Corinthian church. And, and because this is God's word for us, he's doing deep heart work in us. And so I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask you to pray for me as we, um, as we dive into this text and see what God might say to us. God, would you transform us? Would you expose things in our hearts that maybe we've tried to dodge or run from? Would you teach us today? And I pray that as you bring a correcting word, would you remind us of a gospel that is a better word? 
So teach us, form us, shape us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. About five years ago, I was walking through the last kind of significant season of depression in my life. Um, I'm prone to melancholy. I probably have been in and out of depression a number of times in my life, but uh, this was the last season of kind of pronounced depression. Uh, my wife walked with me through that. Chad walked with me through that. And, uh, and, and I had a counselor. I have a counselor. Uh, and Keith is a really good friend of mine. And I was sitting in his office during the season and processing what was going on in my soul. I was really sad. I didn't know why. I was trying to get to the source of what was going on. And uh, I'm talking about what's happening and what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling. And, and a couple of sessions into my time with him, he says, hey, Jeff, can I say something you're not going to want to hear? And if you've ever been with a counselor, especially a good counselor, they ought to say something like that occasionally, and you never want them to say something like that. He goes, Jeff, he said, I don't think your problem is what you think it is. I don't, think, I don't think the word I would use to describe you is sad. He said, the word I, I sense is more at the core of this is rage. At which point I said, I'm not angry, I'm sad. I didn't do that. But I wanted to. Because I felt really exposed at that moment. But my friend Keith served me so well by saying a hard word. And with a surgeon's scalpel, precisely dicing what needed to be cut open to bring healing. And to this day, I'm grateful that Keith in that moment, I can remember where I was in that moment when he said those words. What Paul has been doing in in this book of 1 Corinthians is heart surgery. What he's been doing time and time again is is cutting really precisely to try to help the Corinthian church recognize what's really going on in their soul and keep them from deflecting. To keep them from dodging from these things that they don't want to hear. But he actually presses in and goes, no, 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 I want to talk about what really matters. And our text today is, this, is, the, is the end, in a sense, of, a, of, of this, this section in 1 Corinthians that started in chapter 8 that we've been walking through for the last month. Both Bryce and Chad have led us so well through these chapters, chapters 8, chapters 9, chapters 10, that, that uh, in, in, uh, if you weren't here those weeks, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to them. Because there's so much going on. But what Paul's doing in this section is he's like taking a step back and looking at those chapters and what he's been doing in those chapters from a different angle. And what he's been doing all along might surprise us. I think it surprised the Corinthians. Because if you remember in chapter 8, Paul was talking a lot about food that was sacrificed to idols and whether you could eat it or not eat it and still be a Christian. Now, as a reminder, what was happening in this moment was there were people that were saved out of idolatry. They were worshiping other gods. Their their meat was brought to the market and sacrificed in the name of the God, and then they ate as as a form of worship. And now they're put in context in which somebody serves them a meal and says, oh, by the way, I, 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 this, this meat was sacrificed to this God in joy. And their conscience was pricked, and they step back and go, I can't eat that. But others in Corinth were like, hey, you do realize that idols aren't real, don't you? Dummy. I mean, they're just pieces of wood. They're pieces of gold. They're, they're pieces of bronze. They're, they can't do anything. 
What, what does it mean if you sacrifice something to a piece of wood or to an idea? Just eat the food. And Paul is stepping in going, how do you navigate a situation like this in which you're right, there's actually no real God here, and yet it's pricking the conscience of your friend. And what he's telling the Corinthians is that what you're doing right now is you're flaunting your knowledge and you're hurting your brother and sister. You're puffing yourself up going, we know what's real, we know what's true, and you're using your knowledge, but you're using your knowledge to gain an advantage, all the while you're crushing the soul of the person you're supposed to love next to you. That was chapter 8. Paul showing the Corinthians how they were flaunting their knowledge. Chapter 9, he pivots a little bit and begins to talk about how they were grasping their rights. You see, Paul, Paul is recognizing in the Corinthian church that there's, it doesn't, it's not just the actions they're doing, it's the motivation for the actions that matter. Why are they doing what they're doing? And, and what he's recognizing is the, the, that many in the, the Corinthian church were going, if I have a right to do it, then I'm going to do it. That's my right. That's my freedom. And they were so grasping onto this thing that Paul had to remind them, sometime, sometimes the rights that you have are yours to lay down. In other words, sometimes the very freedom you're given is the freedom that you're to use to serve someone else, not to gain your own advantage. And yet the Corinthian church was grasping at their rights. And Paul reminds them of how he himself laid down his rights to serve them, and he calls them to do the same. And then in chapter 10, he steps into this discussion around idolatry. Idolatry. And he links the idolatry of the moment to the desires that the Corinthian church had been pursuing and then reminds them that this is exactly what Israel had done years and years and years before. Israel had wanted things, gone after those things, and in, and in so doing, been worshiping other things. And so what he tells him is this isn't just about your desires, this is about your worship. That chasing your desires is destroying your soul. So what Paul's been doing over these last couple chapters is, is showing Corinth how they've been flaunting knowledge, how they've been grasping their rights, and how they've been chasing their desires. I'm sure none of you know what any of that's like. I know I don't. No, actually it sounds like us, doesn't it? How often do we do the same things? We flaunt what we know. We grasp onto our rights and our freedoms. I mean, isn't that what it means to be an American anyway? We want our freedom so we can chase our desires. What Paul's going to do here is he's going to lead this conversation over these last couple of chapters into a synthesis moment and give a bigger picture for how we ought to see our lives in, in context of those around us. That's what he's going to do. So let's look at our text, 1 Corinthians 10, starting at verse 23. He says this, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth of the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it 
for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. Now, if you've been tracing with us the last couple of months, that you, you understand the scenario he's playing out here. But what he's trying to do is distill this down into something that very easily could have happened for anybody in the church that, that coming week. So he's taking these, he's taking these high level, this high-level uh, view of what's going on, and he tries to bring it down to street level. Hey, let me give you an example. If this happens this week, here's how you need to navigate that situation. He's given them some pretty practical advice. But what he's doing here is he's laying out the scenario not to simply give them instructions on how to handle dinner on Thursday night. He's actually trying to expose what's in their hearts. He's actually trying to help them wrestle with, to slow down, to stop, and actually ask the question of, why am I doing what I'm doing? What's the motivation that's driving me? I think there's three questions that Paul's actually asking them in this section. By laying out the scenario, he's, at, he's, he's leading them to ask this question. Where is your boasting, Corinth? You see there in verse 23, it said, the, all things that are lawful, if you notice, they're in quotation marks. And this is because this was a phrase that they were using. This was a phrase that they were using to try to, to, try to justify what they were doing, how they were approaching this situation. They were saying, hey, Paul, don't you remember the gospel frees me? I get to do what I want. The law no longer has a hold on me, so get off my back, Paul. That's what they're saying. Hey, all things are lawful, but what's Paul's response to them? Yeah, but, but not all things are helpful. Yeah, yeah, Paul, Paul, I get it, I get it. But don't, I, I just want to remind you again, all things are lawful. And then he says, but not all things build up. In other words, are you doing this to gain or are you doing this to serve? This is the question he's asking. Where is their boasting? Which leads to a second question. Who are you serving? Are you here just trying to serve yourself, serve your own pleasures, chase after what you want, or are you actually here to serve someone else? And I think a third question that's asked are, what are you unwilling to lay down for the sake of others? Are you willing to say no to that meal to serve the person in question? I think the reason that Paul does this is because Corinthians are, are prone to three things that you and I are prone to. They are prone to the same three things you and I are prone to. The first is this. They are prone to self-justification. What we've seen over these last chapters is how quick the Corinthians are to talk about why they're okay, why what they're doing is okay, and why Paul should, should, should embrace their way of seeing the world. They justify themselves. Hey, Paul, I can do that because all things are lawful. Hey, Paul, I can do that because Jesus has freed me from that thing. I get to do what I want, Paul. May I remind you? They're using their gospel freedom, but they were using their gospel freedom to clear the way for them to serve themselves, not to serve those around them. I'm reminded of Jonathan Haidt's brilliant book, The Righteous Mind. And in this book, it's a, it's a kind of a sociology book in which he talks about the, the ways in which uh, our mind, the, 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 the center of our brains and our intellect are tied to the center of our desires and our heart. And he talks about the fact that study after study after study shows this, that what people want comes first and what they think or say with their mind is often used as just justification for what their heart wants. 
In other words, what the leading edge for most of what we do is what we'd want, not what we think. And then he does this. He goes, he said, it's, it's a little bit like your brain is a rider on the elephant of your heart. He goes, if you ever read, I haven't ridden an elephant. I think it'd be awesome. Maybe we can get one out here someday and we can take tours around the neighborhood or around the, the parking lot. I think it'd be great. Easter, Easter promo. Tell, every, tell your friends. Chad just said we're going to have it. No. I've wanted to ride an elephant, but here's the thing. Um, you might have the reins, and you may think you're in charge, but let me just let you in on a little secret. Not a professional elephant rider, mind you, but I think I'm on good ground to say this. The elephant's going wherever the elephant wants to go. You're not like, no, let's go right. No, I'm going left. I'm an elephant. The rider may think they're in control, but they're not. At any point, the elephant wants to go whatever direction they want to go, they're going to go. His point is this. Your desires are like the elephant. Your brain and your intellect and your justification is like the rider. You think your mind is in control, and it's not. We are prone. Our minds are prone to justify and find a way to justify whatever our heart wants. It's cheap manipulation used to cover what we want. Sometimes we're justifying it to, to other people. Sometimes we're just trying to justify it for ourselves. But they were prone to self-justification to provide cover for their selfish pursuits. Second, they're prone to self-gratification. So much of these last couple chapters are the Corinthians saying, hey, but I want to do that thing. I want to have that meal. I want to have that experience, Paul. I, I want these things. I want to gratify my desires. I have liberty, Paul. I'm free, Paul. And they viewed their autonomy as a right to wield. We are desire factories, folks. We manufacture desire after desire after desire, and not all those desires are good. So often we chase after things that promise to fulfill us, but they won't. Desire by itself is not bad. I'm not saying desire is wrong. I'm saying that often the things that we desire are wrong. We chase, like the Corinthians, self-gratification. The third is related but slightly different, and that is the pursuit of self-fulfillment. Self-fulfillment. This has been happening all the way through Corinthians to this point. So many ways in which what the Corinthian church are doing is they're, they're claiming rights to try to fulfill themselves. They're, they're, in essence, asking this question, how can I get more power? How can I get more pleasure? How can I get more recognition? How can I get more security? It, it comes down to how they do. They're, they're suing one another so that they can gain their own. They're flaunting what, what their conscience allows in order to push other people down. And what ends up creating is this sense that's very much like, uh, like what, we, what we face in our culture is this desire to create and curate the self by creating our identity, creating meaning, and creating destiny. See, the Corinthian church is not really that much different than us, is it? Are they? 
But what Paul is not going to let them do is simply reduce this down to which meals you can eat and which ones you can't. He's saying, I want you to look at your heart. And he does that next by stepping into two hypothetical questions or two questions that are meant to summarize. Or I said hypothetical. I meant rhetorical. He's about to ask two rhetorical questions. He's not going to answer them, but there's something in the way he asks them that forces the reader to ask a set of different questions. Let's look at that. Back at verse 29, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 29, the second half of that verse says this, For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that which, for which I give thanks? See, in many ways, he's simply asking the questions that he asked earlier in this whole section. But there's something... There's something that happens when after he's explored what's going on in their heart, he comes back to the questions and just sets them out there and goes, hey, I want you to ask those questions again. I want you to ask those questions again. And I want you, in light of what we've just talked about, to explore your motivations for how you would answer those questions. So he doesn't answer them directly. He's forcing the Corinthian church and, by proxy, us to sit with the same questions but look at them from a different angle. You see, the Corinthians have been grasping, and Paul is correcting here. But what he's about to do is step into four verses that are going to transform the way in which they are to see the world, to see themselves, and see those around them. But what I want to say is, before we get to those verses, what Paul is going to make us do is do some really deep work. He's going to force us to do some really deep work. There's something in what he's doing in this section that he's inviting us to deep introspection, to ask some really critical questions of our own soul. And I wanna, I wanna, I wanna stay, I wanna, I wanna state what's about to happen. I'm about to start meddling. I'm about to start meddling. Because I, I think these verses very easily wind up sometimes on wall art that you get at Hobby Lobby that you put on your wall to make yourself feel better about life. But we, if we don't allow what Paul is doing here to drive deep into our soul and to provide kind of that scalpel, then we're going to miss the whole point of what Paul says here. So while I get to meddling, you might squirm, but I'm going to ask you this. Don't dodge. Don't dodge the question. Because Paul's about to call us into a beautiful vision of a gospel life. A vision that confronts the selfishness of our soul. A, 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 a vision that confronts our, self, our tendency for self-justification, for self-gratification, and self-fulfillment. And he's going to do this by calling us to three things. He's going to call us to right worship, to a right posture, and to a right path. He's going to call us to right worship, to a right posture, and to right path. You ready to dive in? If you're not, we're going anyway. Verse 31. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Well, that sounds easy, right? I mean, I got that on my coffee cup. I'm ready to go. Do everything to glorify God. Until you start wrestling with what that actually means. Because you know what that means? That, that means that it's not just Sunday that's the Lord's day. It's Monday through Saturday. God doesn't say, give me one day and I'll give you six. 
God says, give me them all. You know what that means? Is that as, as, as Chad led us a while ago to give in worship to, 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 uh, to the Lord's work, this, this idea of tithing or giving to the Lord a portion is not you giving his portion so you can keep yours. It's not like he gets 10%, I get 90 God, am I going to tell you do what to do with your money? You don't tell me what to do with mine. No, 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 that's not the way this works. Everything is the Lord's. Everything is the Lord's. As we prayed earlier in the intercession about vocation, your job is not yours. God has placed you there. The relationships he's put you in, he's placed you there. Paul is reminding the Corinthians that their, the decisions they make in life are often, often we, we find are actually centered on us glorifying self or glorifying someone else or something else. And Paul is saying, I want you to stop and ask the question whether all that you do in life is actually for the glory of God or the glory of something else. So here's a meddling question. And I'm just, I'm just meddling with you because this text has been meddling with me all week. Where's our idolatry? Paul talk, or, uh, Chad talked, led us through this last week. And it's one thing to say, oh, this is how Israel followed idols, and this is how the Corinthians followed idols. Here's my question. How do we follow them? Because it's not going to look the same because we don't live in a polytheistic world. We don't live in a place where there are a million different, I mean, not, not here in, 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 in the U.S. So you go to other countries and you're going to experience this more. But where we are, it's the mighty dollar that's worshipped. It's the mighty freedom of being an American that's worshipped. It's, it's, the, it's the mighty uh, uh, view of self that we put on social media that is, that is worshipped. We live in a culture of worship of worshipers, of people that don't, that worship, but they don't worship God. They worship a million other things. Here's my question. How, how are we worshiping like our culture worships instead of worship the way that God has called us to? Where are our idols? Paul calls us, to right worship, but he also calls us to a right posture. Look at verses 32 and 33. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, or, but that of many, that they may be saved. You see, what Paul is calling is to, to view everything you do through, through the lens of how does this glorify God. And then he says, now I want you to turn your attention and look outward. How are you viewing others? How are you pursuing the welfare of others? How are you pursuing the good of others? Our community groups ought to be spaces in which we fundamentally see ourselves as there as givers. Now, I pray that you receive. I pray that if you're in a community group, you receive much. I really do. And I think you will. I think our community groups are places in which many people experience uh, care and service in many, many different ways. 
But here's my question. When we walk into community groups, are we walking in with how do I gain and how do I receive? Or are we walking in with how can I give and how can I serve? See, the right posture that Paul's calling us to is to not do everything for our own advantage, but for the sake of others. I love uh, one of the songs on Ben Rector's new album called Daughter. And uh, for all parents in the room, but particularly uh, parents of daughters, this will, uh, this will ring true. This is some of what he sings. I'm not going to sing it for you, but I, uh, you know, people that have good voices sing and they ask you to, to, to tip them. So I'm going to set Zach's uh, guitar case at the, the, the door over here and you can tip me for not singing. Um, I'll take it. He says this, lately I've been going through changes. I've been doing a little light rearranging. Blew up my whole life, but I'm not complaining. He continues, I, I used to be concerned with my career getting bigger, but I started zooming out and seeing big picture, and I'm starting to see things a little differently. And then he hits the chorus, because I've got a daughter now. The most perfect tiny human. I've got a daughter now. and <laughs> no idea what I'm doing. Can I get an amen from the parents in the room? But the way that she smiles and the way that she laughs gives me some kind of peace like I never had. I guess I see what all the fuss is about because i got a daughter now. I love that song because what Ben is, is reflecting on is when somebody enters your, enters your world that you are there to love and there to care for and there to serve, it changes your perspective on everything, doesn't it? At least it ought to. That there's something about when I see someone else as valuable that I ought to, my life ought to change. The way I see the world ought to change in the way that I approach them. So here's my question. Do you see yourself in this church as relating to strangers who happen to just go to the same strange church in the same strange strip mall Sunday after Sunday after Sunday? If you're offended, I call you strange. Sorry, you are. I am. We are. Or do we see one another as brothers and sisters? Let me ask you this. When you meet strangers on the street, do you see them as mere strangers or do you see them as people that God has a relationship with and is speaking to and is pursuing? When you talk to your enemies, do you view your enemies the way that the world would say you view your enemies or do you view them the way that Jesus saw his enemies? You see, if we begin to see others as worth serving, it will change the way we approach all of life. So here's my second meddling question. Where does your selfishness manifest? And notice I didn't ask, are you selfish? You are. All of us wrestle with these things, don't we? Where does our selfishness manifest? Where, where do we look at somebody who we ought to serve and we go, no thanks, I'm going to serve self? What are those areas in our life where we, put, we, put, we stiff arm other people because I want mine? Paul would say, don't seek your own advantage. Don't seek your own advantage. The third thing he calls us to is a right path. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 
Well, that's the simplest, most straightforward, and completely impossible thing I've ever read. (laughs) And yet, actually, that's what Paul calls us to. He doesn't say, hey, I know you're not divine, so you get a pass on everything. He says, hey, I actually feel I am called and compelled by God to pursue a a, a life that imitates Christ, and I'm asking you to imitate me in the same way. It's pretty audacious, actually, for what he claims. But what he's saying here is this. Listen, we, we, if, if you're not aware, you're in the Bible Belt. I grew up in the Bible Belt. Uh, newsflash. No, not a newsflash. We're, we're, we're familiar with a whole bunch of people that want to call themselves Christians because they're Americans, that claim that they're Christian because they go to church, that will claim something, but their life doesn't reflect it at all. Paul's not saying, hey, claim to be a Christian like I claim to be a Christian. Paul doesn't say, hey, say nice things to others like I say nice things to others. He actually calls us to a way of living that imitates Jesus. When Jesus is in the middle of his earthly ministry, a scribe came up to him at one point and he says, hey, Jesus, I'm, as a scribe, he would have been a, a teacher of the law. He would have been somebody who taught many of the, the things that were in the Torah that the, the Jews would have to follow on a regular basis. And he says, hey, we've got a, a lot of commandments and a lot of expectations, if you haven't noticed. Which one of them is the most important? And Jesus says, well, the, the one that says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then he answered a question the scribe didn't ask, and he goes, let me tell you what the second is. To love your neighbor as yourself. Do you want to know what it's like to imitate Jesus? It's to love God with everything. Not just part of you, everything. And then, to love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, well, my neighbor's rude. Yeah, well... You want me to tell you what Jesus said about loving your enemies? You see, this is a path of life, a way of living. To be a Christian is not to claim to be a Christian. To be a Christian, listen to me very carefully, is to walk in the way of Jesus. So my third meddling question, where is your hypocrisy? This question tore me up, and it's still tearing me up, because I would like to say that after following Jesus for decades, that I've somehow got this thing at least kind of on lock, and yet I just find regularly the fact that I ought to love people a certain way, and I don't love them the way I ought to. I haven't loved my family the way I should. I haven't loved you the way I should. I haven't haven't loved the, the people that are close to me or the people that are my enemies the way that I should. 
And what we can do, listen, what we can do is we can take these verses from Paul that sound cute, put them on a a wall piece, put them in our room, and act like that's what it means to receive this word into our lives and not ask these hard questions. But that's not true. For this word to have its effect in our soul, we have to be willing to ask really hard questions. In the midst of my depression, I needed Keith with the skill of a surgeon to wield his scalpel and show me something I didn't want to see. That's what Paul is doing in these verses. He is serving us by slicing us. But as we close, I want to remind us what Paul will remind us through, uh, through this book and later in this book, and he has reminded us already, that we are not sent out with this commandment and with these hard questions with a good luck. We're sent out with good news. We're sent out with a gospel message that says it is not our, it's not our ability to be successful at these things that is where our hope is found. Our hope is in found. Our hope is found in the fact that even when we fail, God is quick to forgive. That we we rest in a gospel that brings good news of forgiveness. We also believe in a gospel that is that brings the good news of redemption. See, Paul was Paul was correcting, but Paul wasn't shaming them. Paul was correcting, but he wasn't shaming. He was saying that even, even in the midst of the mess you've created, God can bring beautiful things out of that. God can redeem. We believe in a gospel that includes the good news of transformation. You see, the promise of Scripture is that God has given us His Spirit to teach us how to be like this, to walk with us, to to transform our hearts to be like Jesus's. And the Spirit of God is at work in those that trust Jesus towards that end. And lastly, we believe in a gospel that has the good news of security. Listen to me very carefully. God's grip on you is strong even when yours feels weak. So these words, I hope we will hear from Paul as the firm loves or fir, firm words of a counselor who's serving us well. And I pray that it leads us to a gospel that won't be a cheap cliche, a cheap phrase on a coffee cup, I would actually anchor our souls to this beautiful vision that no matter what you do, we are to do it all to the glory of God. Would you pray with me?